This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What I Saw in America by G. K. Chesterton Section 6 Chapter 3 Part 2 A Meditation in Broadway But the next stage of reflection brings us back to the peasant looking at the lights of Broadway. It is not true to say, in the strict sense, that the peasant has never seen such things before. The truth is that he has seen them on a much smaller scale, but for a much larger purpose. Peasants also have their ritual and ornament, but it is to adorn more real things. Apart from our first fancy about the peasant who could not read, there is no doubt about what would be apparent to a peasant who could read, and who could understand. For him also fire is sacred, for him also color is symbolic. But where he sets up a candle to light the little shrine of St. Joseph, he finds it takes twelve hundred candles to light the seventh heaven cigar. He is used to the colors in the church windows showing red for martyrs or blue for madonnas, but here he can only conclude that all the colors of the rainbow belong to Mr. Bilge. Now upon the aesthetic side he might well be impressed, but it is exactly on the social and even scientific side that he has a right to criticize. If he were a Chinese peasant, for instance, and came from a land of fireworks, he would naturally suppose that he had happened to arrive at a great firework display in celebration of something, perhaps the sacred emperor's birthday, or rather birth night. It would gradually dawn on the Chinese philosopher that the emperor could hardly be born every night, and when he learned the truth, the philosopher, if he was a philosopher, would be a little disappointed, possibly a little disdainful. Compare, for instance, these everlasting fireworks with the damp squibs and dying bonfires of Guy Fawkes' day. That quaint and even queer national festival has been fading for some time out of English life. Still, it was a national festival, in the double sense that it represented some sort of public spirit pursued by some sort of popular impulse. People spent money on the display of fireworks. They did not get money by it and the people who spent money were often those who had very little money to spend. It had something of the glorious and fanatical character of making the poor poorer. It did not, like the advertisements, have only the mean and materialistic character of making the rich richer. In short, it came from the people, and it appealed to the nation. The historical and religious cause in which it originated is not mine and I think it has perished, partly through being tied to a historical theory for which there is no future. I think this is illustrated in the very fact that the ceremonial is merely negative and destructive. Negation and destruction are very noble things as far as they go, and when they go in the right direction. And the popular expression of them has always something hearty and human about it. I shall not therefore bring any fine or fastidious criticism, whether literary or musical, to bear upon the little boys who drag about a bolster and a paper mask calling out, Guy Fawkes Guy, hit him in the eye. But I admit that it is a disadvantage that they have not a saint or hero to crown in effigy, as well as a traitor to burn in effigy. 
I admit the popular Protestantism has become too purely negative for people to wreath in flowers the statue of Mr. Kensett, or even of Dr. Clifford. I do not disguise my preference for popular Catholicism, which still has statues that can be wreathed in flowers. I wish our national feast of fireworks revolved round something positive and popular. I wish the beauty of a Catherine wheel were displayed to the glory of St. Catherine. I should not especially complain if Roman candles were really Roman candles. But this negative character does not destroy the national character, which began at least in disinterested faith, and has ended at least in disinterested fun. There is nothing disinterested at all about the new commercial fireworks. There is nothing so dignified as a dingy guy among the lights of Broadway. In that thoroughfare, indeed, the very word guy has another and milder significance. An American friend congratulated me on the impression I produced on a lady interviewer, observing, She says you're a regular guy. This puzzled me a little at the time. Her description is no doubt correct, I said, but I confess it would never have struck me as specially complimentary. But it appears that it is one of the most graceful of compliments in the original American. A guy in America is a colorless term for a human being. All men are guys, being endowed by their creator with certain... But I am misled by another association. And a regular guy means, I presume, a reliable or respectable guy. The point here, however, is that the guy, in the grotesque English sense, does represent the dilapidated remnant of a real human tradition of symbolizing real historic ideals by the sacramental mystery of fire. It is a great fall from the lowest of these lowly bonfires to the highest of the modern sky signs. The new illumination does not stand for any national ideal at all, and what is yet more to the point, it does not come from any popular enthusiasm at all. That is where it differs from the narrowest national Protestantism of the English institution. Mobs have risen in support of no popery. No mobs are likely to rise in defense of the new puffery. Many a poor crazy orangeman has died saying to hell with the Pope. It is doubtful whether any man will ever, with his last breath, frame the ecstatic words, Try Hugby's chewing gum. These modern and mercantile legends are imposed upon us by a mercantile minority, and we are merely passive to the suggestion. The hypnotist of high finance, or big business, merely writes his commands in heaven with a finger of fire. All men really are guys, in the sense of dummies. We are only the victims of this pyrotechnic violence, and it is he who hits us in the eye. This is the real case against that modern society that is symbolized by such art and architecture. It is not that it is toppling, but that it is top-heavy. It is not that it is vulgar, but rather that it is not popular. In other words, the democratic ideal of the countries like America, while it is still generally sincere and sometimes intense, is at issue with another tendency, an industrial progress which is of all things on earth the most undemocratic. America is not alone in possessing the industrialism but she is alone in emphasizing the ideal that strives with industrialism. Industrial capitalism and ideal democracy are everywhere in controversy, but perhaps only here are they in conflict. 
France has a democratic ideal, but France is not industrial. England and Germany are industrial, but England and Germany are not really democratic. Of course, when I speak here of industrialism, I speak of great industrial areas. There is, as will be noted later, another side to all these countries. There is in America itself not only a great deal of agricultural society, but a great deal of agricultural equality. Just as there are still peasants in Germany, and may some day again be peasants in England. But the point is that the ideal, and its enemy the reality, are here crushed very close to each other in the high, narrow city, and that the skyscraper is truly named because its top, towering in such insolence, is scraping the stars off the American sky, the very heaven of the American spirit. That seems to me the main outline of the whole problem. In the first chapter of this book I have emphasized the fact that equality is still the ideal, though no longer the reality of America. I should like to conclude this one by emphasizing the fact that the reality of modern capitalism is menacing that ideal with terrors and even splendors that might well stagger the wavering and impressionable modern spirit. Upon the issue of that struggle depends the question of whether this new great civilization continues to exist, and even whether anyone cares if it exists or not. I have already used the parable of the American flag and the stars that stand for a multitudinous equality. I might here take the opposite symbol of these artificial and terrestrial stars flaming on the forehead of the commercial city, and note the peril of the last illusion, which is that the artificial stars may seem to fill the heavens, and the real stars to have faded from sight. But I am content for the moment to reaffirm the merely imaginative pleasure of these dizzy turrets of dancing fires. If those nightmare buildings were really all built for nothing, how noble they would be. The fact that they were really built for something need not unduly depress us for a moment, or drag down our soaring fancies. There is something about these vertical lines that suggests a sort of rush upwards, as of great cataracts topsy-turvy. I have spoken of fireworks, but here I should rather speak of rockets. There is only something underneath the mind, murmuring that nothing remains at last of a flaming rocket except a falling stick. I have spoken of Babylonian perspectives, and of words written with a fiery finger, like that huge unhuman finger that wrote on Belshazzar's wall. But what did it write on Belshazzar's wall? I am content once more to end on a note of doubt and rather dark sympathy with those many-coloured solar systems turning so dizzily far up in the divine vacuum of the night. From the earth we come, and to the earth we return. When people get away from that, they are lost. The End of Section 6 The End of Chapter 3